Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope you're glad to be here. Uh, if you would open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and probably a good idea would to be would be to go ahead and stick your I don't know what to call these, the hangy-downy thingy, okay? Put your hangy-downy thingy there in Ephesians, because we're going to spend some time there. We're probably going to spend the whole summer in the book of Ephesians. I have about 13 messages prepared, and this being the first of those messages, uh, to go through this book. And and I, I, I want us to really take a close look, and I want us to really be able to understand the message that Paul is writing to this church. Because I think it's incredibly important and an, an incredibly uh, contemporary book today. Uh, the reason is because the church at Ephesus, and we'll talk about this place of Ephesus a little bit, that this place is very much like the world we live in today. And these people, by the way, that he's writing to are people. Are we people? Yeah, we're people. We're people. And that, in, that includes some truths about what it means to be a person, that we have uh, uh, struggles. We have difficulties. We face trials. We uh, are searching for purpose in our life. We're searching for meaning. We're searching for uh, something to live for. We're, we're trying to understand how to, uh, to live in this world and how to, how to figure out how to make good and godly decisions. And when we're born again, we're born into this world. And these people were very much in the world. So in order to introduce this letter to you, we're going to take a little time. We're just going to look at the first two verses, and we're going to look at a lot more verses than just the first two verses. But I really, that's as far as we're going to get, uh, as far as going passage by passage in this, uh, chap- in this book today. It's going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and 2. But I want to take a look at these two verses, and we'll also consider the author of this book. We'll consider the recipients, and then we're going to try to take a real close look, uh, or a brief, excuse me, a brief look at the overall message and why we need to hear this message. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, first says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I know that you are, uh, you've preserved this word for us. Uh, Lord, for all Christians, for all those who, who've been born again, this is, this is a message we all need to hear. This book is a book that is contemporary to each of us and, and should point us to how we should live. And God, I pray you just help us to take this to heart. Help us to draw near to this book. Lord, help me in, in sharing this, uh, this message this morning to, to establish our direction and for us to uh, gain a deeper understanding of your word and of this particular letter to the church at Ephesus. God, I pray for our church. Pray for us that you would just uh, help us to draw near to your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Of course, at the very beginning, we see who the author is. Who's the author? Paul, yeah. Uh, uh, for some reason, I, as I was studying this, I noticed that there were some people who were not certain about Paul's authorship, which I think is just plain foolishness, because Paul himself identifies himself as the author. And he, he describes himself very much as Paul would. He says, an apostle of Christ, 
by the will of God. And, and really, that should just point to the fact that Paul's testimony is proof that God can radically change anybody. And if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, you can attest to the same truth that God can radically change anybody if you've given yourself over to living uh, pointed towards him. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, let me tell you, God can radically change anybody. And many of us try to put up barriers between us and, and, and the faith that God calls us to have, the, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We put up barriers and we say, well, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I'm, I need to get some things changed in my life before I can be- become a Christian. Well, listen, Paul, whenever God redeemed him, whenever he uh, uh, miraculously opened Paul's eyes to the truth of who Jesus Christ was, Paul was a murderer, He was what we would call a terrorist. And now we see him writing at least 13 books of the New Testament. Paul, life changed radically. Also, it's important to notice, I think, that Paul is writing this letter, I believe, from prison. He says it at least three times in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 20, uh, that he was writing from prison. And I think it's probably safe to assume that he wrote this letter during his imprisonment in Rome about the same time that he wrote Colossians and Philemon. And uh, he was chained to a Roman soldier, and I've made jokes about this before. Can you imagine being chained to Paul the Apostle uh, for eight hours a day uh, on a rotation with a couple other guys? This guy who never stops praying and preaching and sharing the gospel, uh, let me tell you... I believe that the, the reason why there was so many churches in Rome and Brother Lester talked about how uh, it reached up into Europe and all over the world is because he was chained to these men and they heard the gospel and they eventually believed and they took this gospel all over the world. He was chained to a Roman soldier, but also he was clearly free to receive visitors because someone helped him to write these letters. Uh, it could be that someone brought him supplies, uh, parchment, and, and, and write. He, he actually requests this uh, in, in Timothy, one of the books of Timothy uh, for Timothy to send writing supplies. Uh, but also someone could have acted as a secretary. But we also see that all, these, all three of these letters actually were sent with uh, Tychicus, uh, who was with him in Rome. So that's the author, and we see who are the recipients. Y'all got to wake up a little bit, okay? I'm excited about this. I need you to get a little more excited. Who were the recipients? The church at Ephesus, the Ephesians, okay? Paul, it says he writes to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's what it says in verse 1. And so clearly this letter is written to the people in Ephesus, but I think in fact this letter would likely have been fruitful and probably was circulated among all the brethren and churches in the area of Asia Minor. It would have been very contemporary to what they needed to hear as well. Um, Acts 19 and 20 shows this really strong connection between the church at Ephesus and the other churches of Asia Minor, where Luke describes how that because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, all they, in uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So because of his ministry, uh, not just Ephesus, this one important city, uh, received the gospel, but because it was there, it went everywhere. And, and there's a reason for that. It's because Ephesus was an important place. In fact, the, the name, the word Ephesus means desirable. 
And in many ways, it was a, certainly a desirable place to live. And as I studied about this, I was reminded of the place we live now. Uh, you know, I'm from North Texas, okay? Don't hold it against me. I, I still have a Fort Worth uh, area code on my phone, and, and, and I, I probably won't change that, not because I'm stubborn, but because it's a pain to change phone numbers, amen? But uh, that's home for me, is Tarrant County. And, and I never... I've said this before, and probably Brother Lester would tell me not to say it again. I never would have dreamed of moving to Houston. Never would have thought, boy, that's a desirable place to live. But now that I've lived here for three years, it's pretty nice. We love it here. We're home here. Somehow God makes places like this home. It's wonderful. And I'm reminded of, uh, of, when I read about Ephesus, I'm reminded of it because Ephesus was a center of travel, and commerce. It was a major metropolitan uh, uh, stronghold. Uh, it was situated on the Aegean Sea at the mouth of the Caister uh, River. Uh, the city was one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. I mean, think about that. Think about the parallels already. We're talking about a, one of the major cities. Houston is, I think, the fourth most populated city in the United States. Uh, it's a massive, uh, massive city, and we have a massive seaport here. We also see that uh, there was lots of travel outside of Ephesus uh, besides from the sea. One road went east towards Babylon via Laodicea, uh, a, a place you've heard of before, another one of the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, another road went to the north via Smyrna, another place you've heard of if you've ever read uh, Revelations chapter 2. And a, a third road went south in, uh, to the Meander Valley. And so the roads, it was just that kind of at the center of everything. And Paul had planted a church here in Ephesus during his second missionary journey, I think. And, and, and I would encourage each of you as we try to go through this study, uh, go back to um, uh, Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Just there's little smatterings of, of, of truth we get to see about the church at Ephesus and the things that took place in Ephesus. And, and of course, that's all narrative. And we're, we're going to be going through this letter, but we're going to look a little bit at that narrative this morning. But I encourage you to go home and study some of that. But uh, he had planted a church here in, in Ephesus during his second missionary journey. I think we see that in Acts 18 verse 19. And then he spent about two or three years there. And he, uh, on his third missionary journey, we see in Acts chapter 19, and um, he spent time there addressing lots of things, but one of the biggest things he had to deal with was false doctrine and pagan practices. Now, let's think about what he would have seen here. The, the people there had embraced all kinds of paganism. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a dark place. And they, they practiced this pagan, these pagan faiths through many erotic uh, and perverted idolatrous acts. Their culture was steeped heavily in materialism. Does this sound anything like our world today? I mean, we're steeped in materialism and, and sensuality is huge here. We may not have gods necessarily and we, not, we may not be buying silver statues to go home and, and worship before in some perverted way. But listen, we worship at the feet of sex in our country, in our world. And it's very contemporary, as I said. Uh, Ephesus was the home to uh, the Roman emperor cult. It was prominent feature of, of life in all of Asia Minor. And they believed that Caesar was the savior. Man, think about that. In fact, you can even go to the ruins of Ephesus now and you can see a, a statue there of the Roman 
Emperor Trajan. Now, he wasn't the, the emperor during the time of Paul. Uh, he, he ruled after Paul, but that, uh, that, that statue shows Trajan's foot up, uh, up on top of the world, giving the idea that he is a god. But that flies directly in the face of Ephesians 1, verse 21, where describing Jesus, he says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only of this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Listen, Jesus is the true God, and that's what Paul brought to Ephesus. And so when the people there experienced, uh, experienced the gospel and they believed it and they changed, whenever they said, Jesus is Lord, what they were saying is, Caesar is not. Uh, we'll see more of the opposition they faced, but that, can you imagine what kind of opposition that would create in a Roman province? Pretty tremendous. Ephesians was also the headquarters for the cult of the Roman goddess Diana, also known as the Greek goddess of Artemis. Her temple was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Her temple had one time, at one time been four times the size of the Parthenon, as I understand it, but it is now reduced to ruins, praise the Lord. Paul taught in the synagogue. He even taught in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. In Acts chapter 19, you might turn there. We're going to spend a little time in 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 9, it says, but when, uh, when some were hardened, it says divers, but he's talking about some people. When divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all that w- uh, they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of God, of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. He taught quite a bit there. And he dealt with some serious spiritual warfare in Ephesus. You get to see that more in in Acts 19 as we continue to read in verse 11. It says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And then, listen to this, certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and priest of the priests, a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, leap, uh, was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on, uh, on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them which also, uh, also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Uh, that's some... Uh, that's some pretty awesome things that are taking place, some serious uh, spiritual awakening that's taking place, but also that's some serious spiritual opposition. I mean, think about what we just read. I mean, anytime you leave a fight naked, you've been beat up pretty bad. 
I mean, these guys weren't only uh, physically beat up, they were emotionally embarrassed and spiritually uh, beat up. I mean, talk about getting your pants beat off, right? These guys were up against it. And this is what Paul was up against as well. But because uh, God was with him, Paul ministered and he was very successful showing miracles to confirm his message. Many repented and, and we saw the account there of, of how many came and burned the books. And it, what do you imagine? What kind of books were they burning? I mean, it wasn't Harry Potter or anything like that, was it? No, they were, they were burning these pagan practice books. They were, they were giving up what the life that they had lived was. Think about that kind of repentance. They had been tremendous and wonderful change take place in this, uh, in this city. In Acts 17, 6, Luke describes the awakening uh, taking place there as the world being turned upside down. It's pretty awesome. But Paul still had lots of difficulties. The world being turned upside down does not please many. The silversmiths were angry, especially a guy named Demetrius. We see in verse 25, it says, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, sirs, you know that by this craft, we have our, our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but also almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people so that they be no gods, which are made with hands so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Nobody was buying silver idols anymore. And this was making those guys upset. And the result was that they dragged Paul. If you read the rest of this passage through verse 41, they dragged Paul and his followers into the, into the amphitheater where they were almost killed. They, dif- they dealt with difficult times. So that church, this church that was born here in Ephesus, was born out of, uh, in the midst of serious opposition. It was a struggle to plant a church there. And that's sort of the case just about anywhere. But the main thing I want us to, to draw into this morning is the message. What is the message of this letter? Why did Paul write this letter? What was his message? You know, as I was thinking about sharing this with you, I imagine maybe, you know, you've been seeing me promote a little bit and talk about this for several weeks about it. I'm going to go through Ephesians. You might wonder, Brother Darren, why do you want to go through Ephesians? Well, let me tell you, that doesn't really matter. What matters is what Paul's message to the Ephesians church was, because we need to know what his message is. To answer that question, I want to tell you a story, a story about a duck. You want to hear a story about a duck? Okay, wake up a little bit then, all right? You know, scientists uh, have learned about ducks that they they imprint soon after birth. Y'all know what that means, to imprint? What What it means to a duck is that uh, a duck will immediately attach themselves to the very first thing that they see after they hatch. And uh, uh, thinking that they are that thing. Which works out pretty well most of the time because most of the time when a baby duck hatches, what is it going to see first? A mama duck, yeah. Mom, Mother's Day. That was a Mother's Day tie-in right there. <laughs> they see mama duck and they, they attach themselves to Mama Duck and they shelter under her wing and they follow her where she goes and they learn how to play in the water and they learn how to eat and how to, how to catch bugs and, and they learn how to do duck things. But 
sometimes this phenomenon backfires. One such example, this story I want to tell you, is about a duckling that hatched under the motherly care of a collie dog. The baby duck took one look at this collie and decided that the dog was mama and that I'm a dog. And so this duck, this baby duck, decided to follow that collie around and would shelter under it for protection and slept with it at night. And, and it spent the hot, hot part of the day under the front porch with the collie because that's where dogs go, right? This duck is a dog. It doesn't even know that it's not a, a dog. It's a, it thinks it's a dog. And when, the car, when a car would pull into the driveway, the duck would burst out from underneath the uh, front porch and, and quack madly at it and start pecking the tires. Can you imagine this? Can you picture this? This is crazy, isn't it? This duck hasn't got it together. This duck doesn't understand. And some things, of course, couldn't be changed. The duck still quacked, still enjoyed the water, sometimes flapped its wings. Sometimes it acted like a duck, and sometimes it acted like a dog. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with Ephesians? I think a lot of Christians are ducks that think they're dogs. You see, when we trust in Jesus Christ and we're born again, we're born again into this world, as I said before. We're born again into this world, and, the, and, and for some reason, unless we have such a wonderful godly example in our life that we attach ourselves to and stay close to, and someone who constantly points us to the Bible and constantly points us to God, usually what we start doing is we start emulating the world. Christians are born and they grow up into this fallen world. So we have learned the ways of the world. We have become like the world. When we become a Christian, we are in Christ. We're supposed to die to the world and, and to see ourselves correctly. We're to, uh, we act like the thing we think we are and we think that we're part of this world. Think about that. How, how attached to you Excuse me, how attached are you to this world? How many of y'all live in a house in this world? You got to keep up that house, right? You got to make sure the lawn is mowed and the air conditioner keeps working because you don't want the air conditioner to stop working, especially in summer coming up. You're attached to that house. How many of y'all have a family? Yeah, I... And, and you're attached to these people in your family and, and you spend uh, many hours considering how to care for them and love them and show your appreciation for them. And if you have young family members, uh, kids and grandkids, you, you spend a lot of time and effort and energy trying to invest in them and, and point them towards the right direction that you think they should go in and try to encourage them to go to college and do well in school and show respect to others and be a good... Listen, we're, att- we're so deeply attached to this world. We build up retirements. We invest in our careers. And these aren't, all of these things that I'm talking about are not bad things. But the reality is, is if you've been born again, you've been born into a completely different life. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter three, he talked about two births, being being born of water. What is that being born of? That's being born of this world. Being born of this world, and, and when we're born in this world, we're part of this world, whether we want to be or not. But then he talked about being born of the Spirit. 
And when we're born of the Spirit, everything about our identity completely changes. We become part of something that God has orchestrated that is a a revival of what he meant for creation. I mean, he created, when he created everything, it was perfect, but sin entered in and has caused destruction ever since that day in the Garden of Eden. But you know what the church is supposed to be? It's supposed to be heaven on earth. The title of my sermon is Be Glory in the Church. This letter is written to a church. This letter is written to the saints, the faithful in Ephesians and Ephesus. The people who, who are now associated with Christ. They're supposed to be different. And talking of the message, I would, I would like to point out to you that the, the key idea of Ephesians is rooted in a phrase that Paul uses 36 times through the book of, of Ephesians. How many of y'all have read through this book this week? I got one hand. All right, one hand. Praise. I, okay, that's two. All right. The book of Ephesians. It's a wonderful book. Read it, please, okay? Read it and read it again and read it again. I read it uh, out loud to myself last night. It took me 21 minutes. Hey, if you could spend 21 minutes a day reading the book of Ephesians, I'm pretty sure your life would be more like what Christ wants it to be. But this, this book in these short, I mean, it's only, for me, it's only uh, five, five, five pages. It's not very long. Just a, 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 not even 200 verses. But in this book, 36 times, Paul uses a phrase that we must, we must embrace to our very core, and that is in Christ. The key idea is about us being in Christ. Now, I'll make a distinction real quick. I'm not talking about to Christ. In that first chapter and the first several verses of, of the chapter we're going we're gonna to be in next week, uh, we'll talk about this word predestination and predestinated. It's not talking about being predestinated to Christ. It's about everybody who is in Christ is predestinated to be in Christ and to experience all the blessings that we see, receive in Christ. But listen, our identity radically changes in Christ. Radically. I mean, everything changes. We observe there's a, a, lot of, a lot of times in this book where it talks about formerly and then but now. So th- this is our former situation, but now and that we're there in Christ, something has changed. When it says that we're dead in sin in Ephesians 2, 4, but now we are alive in Christ, quickened in Christ. We are Uh, In in verse 13 of chapter 2, we are separated from Christ. But now, in Christ, uh, Jesus, we have been brought near to him. Uh, We were foreigners in Ephesians 2.19. We were foreigners to him, but now we're fellow citizens in Christ. Uh, In in chapter 4, verse 20 and verse, verse 24, we were darkened in our understanding, but now we have learned about the Lord, and, and we have put off the old self, we've put off the old man, and now we can put on the new man. And the last 
the second to last chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Listen, this book describes the transforming power of God in our life. Paul was a beautiful testimony of this, and he described uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He was only an apostle by the will and grace of God. His life had been radically changed. And so to the readers of this book, he's revealing to them how their life has radically changed. How now they're no longer part of this world as they were before, but now they're part of an eternal life with Christ. We, become, we, we go from being American citizens, and I praise God for being born in America, uh, and Texas, praise the Lord. But it's nothing, nothing compared to being born again. And having my, my citizenship in heaven established for all eternity No one can ever take it from me because of Jesus. Because I am in Christ. Think about our position. We have a new life in Christ. Uh, uh, This first uh, three messages I'll be preaching through, uh, the next three messages I'll be preaching through, we'll be talking about our new life in Christ, uh, how we've been chosen and adopted by the Father, how we've been redeemed by the Son, how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, how we've been uh, given resurrection power, how we've been given eyes to see the Lordship of Jesus and let Him reign over our life, how we've been brought from death to life by grace through faith in Christ. And then how we have been raised and seated with him in the heavens so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Our identity has radically changed. We've been created unto good works. We find here in this book that Christianity, no matter what you've thought about it, it's not about uh, becoming religious. It's not about conforming to a list of rules. It's not about adopting some kind of philosophy. It's not about financial prosperity, no matter matter what somebody tries to tell you on TV. Being a Christian is not about becoming a nice person even. It's about becoming something completely new in Christ, a new person, a new creature. Our life changes radically and it ought to change how we live. Not only do we have a new identity, we are part of a new community in Christ. I mean, think about this. Our faith is not to be lived alone. Christ did not save you so that you could be a loner. He saved you so that you would partner together. Like this church at Ephesus, they were covenanted together to share the gospel throughout Asia Minor, and they did it with great power. And that's what he's put you into. If you've trusted Christ, most of you, I think, here today are saved Christians. He's put you into this church for his purposes. And it's a wonderful family, a wonderful community. I've been part of churches my entire life. My my parents, you know, we preachers like to use that drug problem joke. You know, I had a drug problem when I was growing up. My parents always drugged me to church. You know, I, I really, I've been going to church my whole life. But you know, when I became when I trusted in Christ, when I, that was settled in my heart at 14 years old, my relationship with my church suddenly changed radically. Before then, I kind of 
was kind of bored at going to church, and there was not really a lot of kids my age. And then, then I, I realized I was part of something, a, a family that was even greater than the family I had outside of my parents and my brothers. And that sustained Melissa and I over these years. Uh, the only way Melissa and I could have survived going to Texas City after uh, spending our life and building a life in North Texas was by going to a place and joining a church family that was going to be closer to me and to us than some of our own deep family at home. It's happened here too. We're a family. <laughs> we have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We even call each other brother and sister. Pray for Sister Betty. She broke her hip. Pray for Brother Randy. We're, we're covenanted together, not just to do God's will, but part of his will is loving one another and encouraging one another and supporting one another. It's, it's supposed to become part of our core identity. Our life is to be built around this community that God has given us. And then in the last three chapters of this book, uh, really the first three chapters are talking about our position and this new identity we have in Christ and the new community he puts us into. But in the last three chapters, he, he talks about how we're to live in Christ, our new life, what, what we're supposed to be like. <laughs> we're supposed to uh, we're supposed to pursue unity, by the way, as a church with one another. We're supposed to be unified. Praise God for the unity in this church. But not only that, we're supposed to pursue purity in our life. We're to live different from this world. We're to identify ourselves differently uh, than we, those who identify to the world. We, we shouldn't be engaged in these uh, pagan practices or what might be uh, uh, derivative of those pagan practices we see all the way back in Ephesians. We shouldn't be involved in, in, in perverse and, and erotic things. We shouldn't be involved in, in a, a, a materialism nearly as much as we are. We're to be living for Christ. Our life is supposed to be built around this church. We should be different. Our Paul describes a distinct character that we're to have, some distinct convictions that we should have, some capabilities that he's given us and our dependence on Christ and one another. Our life is supposed to be different, very different. We also must pursue, think about this. This is, a, this is something we don't talk about a lot. Submissiveness to Christ. In our, our nation, in our world, in America especially, what is praised more than independence? People who are independent, who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and do their own, uh, lead their own life and supply for themselves and, and, and create stability for themselves. But it's all an, an illusion. And it's an illusion that the devil wants you to buy into. That your life is, that is because of you. <laughs> that your life is because you earned it and you worked for it and you put in the time. And we forget how we have breath in our lungs. How we have the energy to wake in the morning. That it all is rooted in Christ. And so when God calls us to do something in our life, we bucket him and we go, well, wait a minute, I've built this life for myself. 
It belongs to me. I'm not gonna, I can't submit to you now. I can't, I can't give in. I've got to live the life I'm living now. Paul reveals a much different way of life, a life of submission to Christ. A life seeking stability in him. I'm about out of time, but I want to share one last thought. If you would turn in your Bible to the book of Revelations. We're going to go to Revelations chapter 2. Excuse me. Paul closed his his book of Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, uh, in a very simple way. He said, Peace be to the brethren in faith and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all the men, all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, in sincerity. Paul had encouraged them to continue loving the Lord with sincerity. And when we go to Revelations chapter 2, if you know much about uh, this chapter, you know that uh, this is where Jesus has messages for the seven churches of Asia. And the first one right out of the gate is who? Ephesus. Look at what he writes. He says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the sandal, seven golden candlesticks. He's talking about himself, Christ, writing to the pastor of this church. He said, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. He's giving them praise. And that's born and has patience. And for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Pretty good message here. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent. Do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repents. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to give them, uh, to him that give, overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But remember verse 4 and 5. What did he say? He gave them all these praises. Their faithfulness. Their unity. Their their rooting out of, of heretics. Their faithfulness to endure without fainting. Yet they had lost their first love. Uh, this may be a, a Darren Simpson connection for you, okay? I'll, I'll preface it with that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. I don't know. I think that first love was 
a love of sincere love for Jesus Christ, which exhibits itself. And yes, all these things, all these attitudes of faithfulness, but not because we're supposed to do them, because that's our culture, that's our habit, but because we love Christ. I want my prayer for this study, and I'm going to try to go in deep with you. Uh, That doesn't mean I'm going to preach 35 messages on this. There's probably some preachers that could do that. I'll try not to uh, wring every bit of blood out of every stone and word in this book. But I want us to capture the overall message in my prayer is that we will remember our first love. Well, will be revived in knowing that Christ has redeemed us from eternal damnation and, and achieved for each of us that have believed an eternity we could never dream of having on our own. And to, to take a moment and, and see the glory of his amazing plan that he's made. Lord, for us to remember and to fall in love with the idea of him receiving glory in his church. For us to pour our lives into his work, into what he's saved us for. Because let me tell you, each and every one of you that's saved and part of this church or any other church, you're part of that church for a purpose. Jesus didn't save you just for you. I mean, he loves you and he wants you to have good things and he wants to give you this inheritance that he's secured by his own blood. But let me tell you, he saved you so that this could be shared with the rest of the world. And if we don't do it, (laughs) and I'm afraid what what eventually happened to this church at Ephesus, this church that was shut down uh, around the second century, I believe, and, and later, this city of Ephesus would better, later became a, a stronghold for the Roman church. I'm afraid what will happen is he'll remove the candlestick. And this church will die. We have a life to live for him. Something completely different than what we naturally live. I want to ask the question this morning. Are you a duck that thinks you're a dog? Take a look at your life. How close are you to living for this world or living for Christ? I can't tell you. I can't. I I may be your pastor, but I, I don't know what goes on in your heart. I have no idea. Let's fall back in love with Christ. Let's live for him. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. I want to share with you, <coughs> excuse me, that Christ died for you. He died that you might have eternal life. And if you're here today and you're not certain about your eternal life, you absolutely can be. Uh, one of the most powerful passages in this whole book, Ephesians chapter 2, we see where he says, For by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You're not going to be able to save yourself. You're not going to be able to be good enough. You're not going to be able to even be good enough to keep your salvation because that wouldn't be grace in the the first place. We're saved by his grace, by his love.
If you're here today and you've never trusted him and you need to know him, come. We would love to introduce you to him and how you can be saved. Let's stand together. Brother Eric, you come and lead us in a word of, of a verse of invitation. <clears> Thank <throat> you.